Church, we are finish, finishing, or not finishing, we're moving through chapter one uh, of Proverbs. And we're going to be spending some time in the whole book uh, of Proverbs the next few weeks. And this morning, Solomon has a difficult task ahead of him. He is introducing us to wisdom. He's just finished warning his readers not to fall into the power of sin. He has acknowledged it as enticing and attractive, but ultimately leading to death. But now he wants to promote a different way. Now he has to give wisdom a chance to win over the naive and the simple. How is he going to talk about wisdom in a world so mired by sin and foolishness? How does he make goodness, truth, and holiness appealing when temptations seem so immediate and so powerful? Solomon's solution might surprise you. He starts by writing a poem. His introduction to wisdom is not a long lecture explaining the ins and outs of moral behavior. This isn't Ethics 101. Instead, he trades in the complicated moral dilemmas for images, metaphors, repetition, the stuff of poets. Now, I'm not a poetry expert, but what I do know is that poetry is meant to slow us down. T.S. Eliot once said that poetry communicates before it is understood. And what he means by that is that poetry is experiential and the layers of meaning can only be understood as we attend to and listen well to what is being said. In introducing wisdom, Solomon is going after our whole beings, not just our minds, but our hearts and souls as well. And I think this strategy is crucial for us to wrap our minds around. If we're going to compete with the desires of the flesh, with the temptations of the world. Our whole beings must be captivated by the pursuit of wisdom. And maybe that's why Solomon chose a poem, not to explain wisdom rationally, but to captivate us holistically. He doesn't tell us about being a wise person first, so that will come later. He introduces us to Lady Wisdom, who shouts for us in the streets. Solomon wants us to have a visceral experience of the reality of wisdom. He wants us to know it in our bones, to pursue it with our lives, to truly hear her voice in our hearts. So, we have to respect the choice of Solomon and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this morning we're going to slow down and treat this as what it is, a poem. Now, some of us are not poetry people. And that's okay. I'm not much of one myself, though I, would, I will say I'm beginning to see its benefit the more I spend time with them. All I'm going to do this morning is read four different sections of our passage slowly and give the poem a chance to communicate before it is understood. And all I'm going to ask you to do is to just notice the words and phrases that stick out, the images that pop up in your head. Let scripture guide your imagination this morning. After I read each section slowly, I'm going to share a few things that I've noticed as I've been studying these passages. But to be clear, and this is true of any 20-minute sermon, there's certainly way more here than what I will say. You might have ideas and insights that show up that don't get covered, and that's okay. 
It's part of the power of the red word of God, and it's part of the power of poetry. So we're going to start this morning in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. It might be helpful to read this along with me as I'm reading it myself. Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20 through 22. Church, hear the poetry of God. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. What do you notice as I read those words? What images appear in your mind? What feelings do the words communicate? The first thing I notice is that wisdom is seen as a person. She's given agency and action. In Solomon's understanding, wisdom wisdom isn't this abstract idea or problem to be solved. She's an active agent in God's creation. More than that, I've been struck by this image of wisdom in the streets. Keep in mind, Solomon received a special gift of wisdom from God. It might be easy for him to see wisdom as something reserved for the few or hard to obtain. He could have hidden wisdom away in the recesses of his palace or the temple. That isn't the image we're given. We are given wisdom shouting where everyone can hear her. So it seems Solomon wants us to know that wisdom is available to each and every one of us. It isn't for the select few with high IQs or the ability to read biblical Greek or complex theology. There's nothing wrong with those things, and I thank God for the smart Christians of the world, but wisdom's invitation comes to each and every one of us in our ordinary places, in our ordinary lives. Wherever we find ourselves, the invitation to pursue wisdom is present. The question is, can we hear her shouting in the streets? This poetic image tells us something about God's creation. It cuts to the heart of the matter in ways normal prose wouldn't. It might be easy for us to see the brokenness in our world, all that Solomon just got done describing in verses 8 through 19. It might be easier for us to believe that than it is to believe that in the midst of that brokenness, a voice is calling out to us. Can we hear her voice in the markets and streets of Raleigh, the hallways of our schools or businesses? Do you recognize the reality of God actively pursuing you every day? Here's the irony of Solomon's poem. In the beginning of chapter one, he told us to pursue wisdom. Here he writes a poem where wisdom pursues us. The more captivated we are with this reality, that God is working in and through our lives to bring us closer to himself, the less enticing the sins of the world and the flesh will be. Wisdom is crying aloud and calling to you. She's raising her voice where you work, where you rest, and where you play. Now, what is she saying? Let's slow down and listen in the same way to the next couple of verses, starting in verse 22. Here are the words of wisdom. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight 
in their scoffing. And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. What do you see? What do you hear? Let's start with who wisdom is addressing. Three words give us a clue. The simple, the scoffers, and the fools. Simple can also be translated naive. And one commentator took it a step further and translated it as the uncommitted. It's the person who has not yet decided, who isn't dedicated to wisdom, which according to the book of Proverbs makes them vulnerable to the power of sin. There's a lot of talk in our world today about purpose, and particularly maybe in our young people, a powerful sense of purposelessness seems to be spreading. Wisdom offers a solution. Wisdom says, commit to me. Have a goal of growing in wisdom. Scoffers, by contrast, have already made a commitment. But it is to cynicism. It's to a rejection of wisdom. It seems to carry with it the idea of someone refusing to listen and speaking themselves instead. Fools seem to be indifferent to wisdom, simply ignoring or crying out. But the hinge of this section comes in verse 23, where she says, Turn at my reproof. Whether you are uncommitted, a scoffer, or a fool, wisdom's words are the same. Repent. The poem places the simple fools and scoffers right next to this hinge, listing them off one by one before showing them the way out, asking them, How long will you wait? as if wisdom is saying, I'm right here. Turn back to me. Repentance is an important word in the Christian faith. It means more than just acknowledging our wrongdoing, but turning from our wrongdoing towards a new way of life. And it's this new way of life that wisdom offers the fools, the scoffers, and the uncommitted. Wisdom says, if you turn, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. I think the question inherent in this poem for us and for her three conversation partners is this. Is that appealing to you? Do you long for wisdom? I still remember an analogy a youth pastor used to use for me when I was growing up trying to explain repentance. It's from the movie Beverly Hills Cop 2. Now, the wisdom of quoting a movie like Beverly Hills Cop 2 to a bunch of teenagers is debatable, uh, but I will say the illustration stuck with me. So do with that what you will. The scene is Eddie Murphy confronting uh, Gilbert Gottfried with 25 unpaid parking tickets. And Gottfried says something along the lines of this. Is there anything I can put in this hand to make you forget what's in this hand? Referencing the tickets. I'm not saying that repentance is like bribing cops to get out of parking tickets. What I am saying is that repentance is finding something to put in this hand that is more potent, more appealing, so much so that we forget and turn away from what's in this hand. We drop our foolishness, our scoffing, our lack of commitment so we can grab hold of wisdom. And as we do this, wisdom makes a promise. I will pour out my spirit on you. 
I will make my words known to you. If we're going to leave behind sin and death, we must train our hearts to love the spirit of wisdom, to long to know and understand her words. That is the fuel of our repentance. The offer is there, so close to our foolishness and our scoffing. The question is, will we turn and be filled? You may have noticed the intensity of wisdom's call in the first two verses that we read. She's crying out. Wisdom isn't whispering. She isn't using an inside voice. And now we come to see why. And this starts in verse 24. Here again, the voice of wisdom. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. These are hard, disturbing words. Images of storms and whirlwinds, destruction and fear. And in the midst of it, wisdom says she laughs and refuses to help. What's the impact of such an image? Does it mean that God is callous or uncaring? Remember, we're dealing with poetry, language that's meant to elicit these kinds of emotions and experiences. We're meant to feel the tension of these words. It is intentionally challenging, and it is intentionally brutal. But remember her audience, the fools, the uncommitted, the scoffers. Wisdom is speaking to them before the storm has come. She's speaking to those who have not yet entered the storm and who are woefully unprepared. This is a warning of danger to come. And notice there is no if a storm comes. It's when a storm comes. Wisdom is warning the uncommitted, the fool, and the scoffer that down the path they are taking, destruction is waiting for them. And if they reach that place of calamity, that place of whirlwinds and terror, it will be too late to listen to the cry of wisdom. As we turn towards wisdom, we should have clear eyes to what we're leaving behind. Wisdom is not keeping good things from us, but is keeping us away from bad things. Despite what the temptations may say, God is not holding out on us. His desire is to protect us. But that only works if we repent before the storm comes. That only works if we're willing to trust in the voice of wisdom now. You put your tent up before the rain falls. You get the fire going before the sun goes down. You submit to wisdom before the consequences of ignoring her come your way. So wisdom calls in the streets. She wants to reach those who are ignorant of her ways. She longs to give them her spirit and to teach them her words. She warns them of the inevitable danger that is ahead if they continue on this path. How does Solomon wrap up this first wisdom poem? The last four lines are a kind of summary, but they end with a picture of the life of the wise. Let's read slowly one more time, starting in verse 32. 
For the simple are killed by their turning away. The complacency of fools destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Here we have another contrast. The way of folly and the way of wisdom placed side by side. It's a fork in the road. It's a decision point. It is a choice between two options where you know the result of each. According to wisdom, there's no mystery between listening to her and not listening to her. Those who do not listen ultimately destroy themselves. This is a common theme in Proverbs, one we've already run into. Those who do violence and evil to others are ultimately doing violence and evil to themselves. But those who do listen, they are said to dwell secure, to be at ease without dread of disaster. One of the commentators I read asked this question. Is Proverbs promising too much? Doesn't this sound a little too good to be true? The wise one will be at ease without dread of disaster, while the complacency of fools destroys them? Doesn't that sound dangerously close to a promise of health and wealth? We need to wrestle with this kind of language because it shows up throughout the book of Proverbs. God promises over and over again that the life of the wise will be better than the life of the fools. But experience might tell us there are times when disaster strikes the wise, when heartache and sorrow hurt and harm. On the other side, isn't it true that sometimes fools prosper? Doesn't it seem like they never get the storms that wisdom warns them of? I just want to encourage us this morning, there's room for these kinds of questions in Scripture. Like everything, I believe we should bring these questions to the foot of the cross. And there we see the wisest man to ever live suffering a horrific death. He was beaten, mocked, nailed to a piece of wood. And yet before he was arrested, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And as they drove in the nails, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And yes, in a moment of darkness, he did say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Giving us all permission to say that with him in our moments of darkness. But in the end, he said, it is finished. It is finished. So if you read these final words of wisdom about security and ease and don't always feel that way, And yet you long for wisdom every day, like she asks. I want you to know that you're not alone. To quote another poem that's meant a lot to me in my moments of darkness. Though you cannot see or speak or breathe, the everlasting arms are underneath. You are being held firmly in crucified arms. And you can be still. You can rest secure. So who is a wise person? What do they look like? Here's my answer to that opening question. The wise have a stillness of the soul. Because they are being held by God. 
Despite the storms that may come, despite the ups and downs of life and the temptations that plague us, the wise can be at ease knowing they are pursuing wisdom and that wisdom is pursuing them. The wise can be refreshed with the poured out spirit of wisdom. The wise can be growing as they learn the words of wisdom. The wise can dwell secure, building the house on a firm foundation that handles every passing storm. It may not always be easy. It may not always make sense. But wisdom gives us direction. So where does this leave us? I think it leaves us with the Apostle Paul in our New Testament reading this morning. Paul says he is pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of him. Hold on to Christ as he holds on to you. Pursue wisdom as wisdom pursues you. Wisdom shouts in the streets. Can you hear her? Amen.